John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 1078.mi0303, certificate number 7628, Michael Rockefeller. Uh, Mike Rockefeller was aboard a double-held canoe with a Dutch anthropologist. They were trying to go up the Islanden River, the River of Islands, on the southwest coast of Dutch New Guinea. There's a tidal bore in the island and river. In fact, uh, at periods of full moon, it sweeps down that river, water about 18 feet high. Have we talked about this? Have you ever been to Southeast Asia? I know you grew up uh, some, some portion of your life in Korea. My family moved to Singapore in 1992, the same year I went to college. So I visited them in Singapore. I've visited Thailand. My first time in Southeast Asia was in high school. I did Model UN. Have we oh, talked about this? Did you ever wow. do Model UN? So I did. I did Model UN in Anchorage, um, but I didn't go all the way to nationals or whatever it is you're talking about. I didn't go to nationals either, but there was some kind of Asian variant of it. Oh, because you were doing Model UN in Korea. Yes. Ah. It doesn't make it more real to do it overseas, but we did fly down to uh, Jakarta huh. to do our general assembly. That's more real because the people in Alaska went up to Fairbanks, which is, uh, I mean, we call it the Jakarta of Alaska. It seems more real. Like if you were like, which place probably has more, you know, UNE looking guys in neighbor jackets. Sure. Different to Jakarta different or Fairbanks. Yeah. You would say Jakarta, but it was just a regional school thing the same way Fairbanks would have been. Yeah. I was, maybe I have put it in the omnibus before. I was Spain, a country I knew nothing about. Oh, right. I was just told by my guy, Hey, um. You mostly just vote with Europe, but you might not like the British because of Gibraltar. Go. That right. was like all the coaching I got no, to, that's, to be Spain. To be fair, more or less accurate. I think it's not wrong. I mean, you, you've got some, you've got, still have some interest in Hispaniola, but for the most part, yeah, you're just mad, up, you're mad about Gibraltar. And this was post-Franco, so you wouldn't have been like some last fascist holdout. No, I wasn't some super cranky old Catholic man, right. although I will be someday, but, yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't as a high school junior. And I just found out after our uh, omnibus show in San Francisco, some friends from my high school were in the crowd and came up and talked to me. And one of them had been on this trip with me and reminded me that our history teacher had bought us beers at the hotel bar after the General Assembly Whoa! in Jakarta or maybe KL on the way down. Did you drink a beer? I did not. I right. did not drink then, and I don't now. Right. And it was one of these um, straight-edge stories where the girl was like, I always remembered you were the only one that didn't order a beer. Good for you. Yeah, good for you. So look at me changing lives, <laughs> but not that much because they all ordered beers. She didn't then say, and years later when I got sober, you were my inspiration. <laughs> no, at the time I met them, it looked like they had both had a few glasses of wine yeah. at dinner, so yeah, my influence was limited. Yeah. But that was my first time hanging out at the International School of Jakarta. So maybe a little different than Michael Rockefeller's experience. Yeah, well, I've, so I've never been to Southeast Asia, but my dad was in World War II as a pilot in the Navy, and he flew C-47s, transport planes, and island hopped throughout that region, spent some not small amount of time in New Guinea. Oh, he was in New Guinea. Um, ferrying supplies and, and uh, flying out wounded and bringing in ammunition. And you know, he was a Navy pilot through the end of the war. But you've never wanted to do any kind of Pacific theater tourism to see your, the places where your dad's stories took place? or I have. I, I think when I was a young guy and like a, an active global tourist, 
I was always intimidated by going to places where I would, where I would really stand out. Um, you like being a racial majority. Let's put it that way. I definitely like, I, I try to blend in as a traveler and it's a folly, right? I mean, it's precisely uh, the more interesting place you go, the less you're going to blend in. But I was, you know, partly I think because I'm naturally an introvert, I don't like being the center of attention right. of strangers and stranger energy. To stand in the middle of a public square and have everyone staring and pointing at me was always uncomfortable. Uh, as I got older, I realized, oh, no, that's just in the nature of traveling and that's what you do. But, but it inhibited me at first from going to a place like New Guinea, and it just hasn't come up since then. It is nice to have the high school realization that um, really nobody's pointing at you that much because they don't actually care that much. No. Even if they're mildly interested in, hey, there's a big bearded white guy here for a change. That, that, that'll wear off soon. Uh, but there are more extroverted cultures than others, right? Some places it is not in the nature of the culture to point and stare. Sure. And other cultures it really is. You know, it's, um, in my experience, the most exaggerated version of this was in Romania, which is a Latin culture. They're very, very interested in outsiders and and will mob you if you're a stranger in the village. Whereas Bulgaria, right across this river, um, the Danube, uh, is a Slav- shout, shout out to the Danube. Is a Slavic culture where they would never display any interest in you. Like you walk right into the middle of a wedding and everyone would just turn their backs on you. And you, that's what you want. You're a Slav at heart. I, I, I want to lean up against the wall and watch rather than be like in the center dancing with the bride. You want the world to be your own private Bulgaria. Uh, but, Michael Rockefeller was not like me. He, he liked being on display. He, he, he must have. He was an extremely Caucasian scion of one of the wealthiest families in America. Which and, family was that? Uh, a little family you may have heard of called the Rockefellers. The Rockefellers. Rockefellers. He was descendant of John D. Rockefeller at, uh, at one time, perhaps the richest man in the world. Yeah, America's first billionaire, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, he, let's see. Back when he, a billion dollars really meant something. You, when you could buy something with it. Yeah. And he was Nelson Rockefeller's son, which right. would make him what? John D. Rockefeller's great-grandson? Great-grandson, right. And Nelson Rockefeller at the time, uh, an incredibly prominent American, the governor of, uh, we're talking about now starting in the late 50s when uh, Michael Rockefeller was graduating from college. His father was governor of the state of New York and ran for president uh, multiple times throughout the 1960s, ran in 60, 64, 68, and eventually became the vice president of the United States under Gerald Ford. And for a while, the last gasp of that thing where somebody with the right industrial last name, it was just assumed that they would amass political power as well. There was kind of a gap before our current era in which it would seem odd for a captain of industry to... Well, sure, there are no, like, sons of millionaires or captains of industry or just basically celebrities, white celebrities, who think that that entitles them to political power now. I guess the Bushes were a uh, petro-bajillionaire family, oh, oh, right? do you guess that? <laughs> is, is that an I idea mean, that's just popping into your head? Well, the Rockefellers are still more famous for amassing money than political power, whereas the Bushes went the other way, right? I mean... Yeah, I think that that uh, amassing political power was a late occurrence to um, the at least the younger Bushes, right? I think they just were in the game of George W. Bush just wanted to be a like a rich playboy. But no, you're right. Actually, the Bush family were politicians even before Herbert Walker, right? His father was also a U.S. senator. Yeah, Prescott Bush was a senator. Right. And he was and he was from the era where, well, of course he's a senator. He's right. a, he's an he's, oil yeah, bajillionaire. Sure. He's from Penobscot. But maybe uh, that was not a good look for a while. You know, the idea that, you know, the senators were more likely to be people with a story, you well, know, a, a we, veteran or a... We love the Kennedys and it's a, sim- although not based in oil, it's a similar sort of uh, like millionaire ri- riches to rags story based on bootlegging instead of oil. Now um, that all the good old billionaires are dead, we just make fake billionaires president. Right. Someone who is... uh, Although, again, our current president, the son of a rich guy, a real estate developer instead of an oil magnate. But Nelson Rockefeller 
actually is a member of a different kind of dying breed, which is the liberal Republican. Right. A Rockefeller Republican. A Rockefeller Republican. They took their name from him, which is a Republican that was interested in the environment and in social issues and in... Uh, he was just a, he was fiscally conservative, but socially liberal, which is, I guess, the definition of a uh, what we used to call a Rockefeller Republican, and now they call a Rhino Republican in name only. If they existed, like they're ex- they're as extinct as actual rhinos, right? Right. And although somehow they didn't all become Democrats, they became I don't know what I don't know where those people are now. They all have weird libertarian think tanks. Yeah, that's what it is. But yeah, the, the party divide in this country did not align neatly with liberals and conservatives the way it has since that kind of post-Nixon Southern strategy era. There were conservative Southern Democrats that uh, would agree with none of the social positions of the Democratic Party today. Right. And plenty of Northern liberal Republicans who, again, would not agree with the social positions of their part. Yeah, that seems like a more interesting time. But, you know, maybe futurelings are going to feel differently because in the future, Democrats will be all about prison camps and Republicans will be be about, you know, like intersex dances. (laughs) Well, it it does seem odd, right? If parties are not going to break on ideology, like what is going on there? Like it's, it's, there's some kind of other tribalism. Or, or a coalition of tribes, I guess, that powers the whole thing. Well, and it's an interesting thing about, uh, and I think it, it's rooted somewhat in how we think about race. We think about race very differently now than they did even 50 years ago. I think in general, I mean, in, in particular, in, in the case of Michael Rockefeller and his father, this was during an age when anthropology was a big, a big to- you know, a, like a favorite new major for college students in the 50s. And the idea that there were all these undiscovered tribes in the Amazon and in Southeast Asia, and that these tribes were interesting not as fellow human beings, but as primitive others that you could intersect with, not quite to the Victorian sense of keeping a pygmy in a cage at the zoo, but certainly they were cultures that you could uh, appropriate without feeling too bad about it. And a window into us maybe, right? Because, you know, if you study the civilization most different from us that you can imagine, you know, often the jungles of wherever, uncontaminated by whatever uh, influences of modernity, you can see what they do and then you discover what is actually essential to being human. Right. Which facial expressions do they actually have that mirror ours? Which customs are and mores and ethics are the same as ours and which are different. Right. We study their, their language, we study their religion, and we see interesting contrasts. And it kind of didn't matter, at least at the time, that we stole their, their holy relics in order to take them back and look at them under a microscope. Right, because there was an art world aspect to this as well. What beautiful things did they produce? Right. And, it was, and that was happening here in the United States, too. The idea that primitive works of art, even made by shopkeepers in Maine, some old sign of a guy pushing a wheelbarrow that spun around outside your barbershop that's that a, that a rich collector from New York could come buy it for 50 bucks and display it in a museum. And partly driven by grandma Moses, I guess, you know, a folk artist becoming a genuine celebrity in America and a novelty because of her advanced age and unusual rural background. That's outsider art. Well, and, and this is like at the core of Picasso's art. He studied, uh, what w- would have been described then as primitive art or indigenous art and took a lot of cues from non-Western perspective yeah. and, and, you know, assimilated it into his own his art. His simplified bulls or whatever could have come straight off a cave painting in Southern France. Right. So there was a new eye for this stuff. And in 1959, the Rockefeller family opened, wait for it, the Museum of Primitive Art in New York uh, that featured artworks um, that were, you know, useful items taken from other cultures, from uh, the uncontacted tribes of the Amazon or the uncontacted tribes of New, Ze- uh, of New Guinea or, and New Zealand, right? These masks and totems. Um, gourds, pen- yeah, penis gourds, th- things, uh, a lot of things with penises on them, or gourds you wear around there, gourds that you use, 
like gourds for, um, well, gourd, that's where we get the term gordito burrito. <laughs> Just gourds everywhere. It's for people who are really into gourds. <laughs> that's not where we get the term gordito. It's where we get the term Gordon Lightfoot. Museum of Primitive Art is now closed, and you'd never call it that. No. Today. So cultural anthropology really fell out of fashion as soon as we realized how incredibly like racist and condescending it was. But during this era, it wasn't thought that way at all. And it was some thought- of it was crooked, right? You read Margaret Mead's book today, and it turns out that people were just having a laugh at her and telling her crazy stuff, and some of the scholarship was not even all that great. Yeah, that's later after these uncontacted tribes had been contacted and realized that they could just run a scam on them. But it was crooked in another way, which was coming in and saying like, hey, I'll give you like two packs of cigarettes for that sacred thing that's been central to your tribal ideology for 2000 years. And people are like, wow, two packs of cigarettes. Uh, Sure. And they just, they didn't have a sense of ownership of things, right? Like, oh, you want to look at our thing? And then it ends up in a museum in New York. Um, During this era, it was thought of as very sort of socially advanced and sophisticated and intelligent, liberal, progressive interest in other cultures and in art. I'm thinking of the Disneyland, It's a Small World, which I think is also late 50s, early 60s. The idea that there's children all over and look at the weird ones. Some of them have a bone in their hair and many of them are banging spears. But isn't that great that we're all different, but we're all God's children? This was the model of diversity in that era. And this is the idea of the United Nations, as you described a second ago, where everyone's wearing a Nehru jacket and some sort of different patterned hat. And we think of it as almost like the uh, the council of elders. We get everybody together and we make decisions as a unified people. I don't want to live near these people, I guess, was, would have been the subtext for just about everyone. Yeah, sure. I mean, stay on your island, but send us your art. Right. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout uh, so the opening of this museum which was a you know a big smash in new york it really effect- affected uh michael who was 19 at the time And he felt a lot of pressure, I think, as a young, rich kid to follow in his father's footsteps. Family business. To be a a liberal Republican and to run their multi-million dollar enterprises. We should go back in time and tell him there is no future in being a liberal Republican. Don't worry. And no future in being rich. Boy, you should give up on that game, right? The rich rich didn't inherit the earth. Oh, wait. (laughs) They did. Uh, he wanted to be, you know, he took liberal Republicans seriously. He wanted to be an interesting Yaley who, this is the early sixties. I think he wanted to grow a beard and wear beads and, and eventually probably would have ended up banging a bongo with Timothy Leary, but he had the resources and he wanted, he thought his great adventure as a young man was going to be to go to New Guinea, where some of these fascinating artifacts at the museum of primitive art from whence they were derived, he would go directly there. And the tribal people of New Guinea were among the last, I mean, this is a place, New Guinea has over a thousand indigenous languages. Right. So there's incredible complexity, little tiny cultures just dotting the jungles with incredible diversity of belief and practice. There was a place that they described as the Great Valley uh, where... Finally, in exploring New Guinea by airplane, uh, Westerners flew over this valley that had like 50,000 little uncontacted villages in a complete ecosystem, like a civilization that had not ever met the outside world. But New Guinea had so little in terms of like covetous resources 
that some of these tribes were just on the coast on a big island near busy waterways and no one really bothered to contact them because there wasn't any gold or oil. If they'd had ivory, it would have been a different story. Yeah, but, but they were just, and they were uh, typically very warlike cultures. Um, That'll keep the canoes away. It will. And it, like we talked about earlier, the people of... The Sentinel Islands? The, the, the Sentinel Islands, the Sentinelese. Elsewhere in the omnibus. When when people from India have tried to contact them, they've been greeted with a hail of spears. And that was true of the people of, of Western New Guinea as well. But this was during a period of great upheaval in that region because the larger island of New Guinea was a colonial territory of the Dutch at this point. And it had been fought over by various European colonizing countries. Part of it had been... German, part of it was British, and then subsequently Australian. The lion's share of it was colonized by the Dutch. And in the aftermath of World War II, as colonialization was unraveling, the Dutch were under tremendous pressure to, to seed this island and for, for there to be new countries, autonomous countries in this, in this region. This is, New Guinea is the second largest island in the world after Greenland. Uh, counting Australia as a continent. As a continent, not an island. And uh, probably one of the Netherlands' very last colonies, I assume, that, you know, that having, they've already lost Indonesia by this point. Right. A lot of their former colonies in the area are independent. I think they are holding on to Suriname. At the, Suriname is still Dutch Guiana. Yeah. That's right. But yeah, this is a, you know, this is a major territory, but a long way from the Netherlands and not really producing a ton of, I mean, I guess there's quite a bit of forest, but, you know, it wasn't, any more much of a feather in their cap. But it was, a, it was during a period of tremendous sort of upheaval in the region because these tribes were now being contacted and being visited by people like Michael Rockefeller. Now, they had only really had Catholic missionaries there for a pretty brief period of time in the, in the 20th century. And the, the original missionaries arrived, as they often do, and said, hey, we love your rituals. Do you want to eat and drink our guy too? Yeah, like, you know, a lot of your rituals are really similar to ours, except we don't, let's do away with the head hunting, first of all, <laughs> and the cannibalism, and then let's just turn the rest of it into Catholicism. How's that sound What to if you instead guys? of head hunting, bingo? Yeah, right. What if instead of cannibalism, we eat wafers and call it the flesh of our enemies? That's, it's, transubstantiation is literal. Yeah. You know, they, right. that, maybe that's an easy sell to a headhunter tribe. Well, except you want to turn that flesh of your enemies into the body of Christ, which is a little bit of a further uh, analogy, right? Like it's one thing to say, this is the yes. body. You're literally getting your, the strength of chief whatever when you <laughs> take a scoop of his brains. Right. You got to flip that around and say like, no, we're eating. It's very complicated. Listen, we'll explain it to you later. But these were, these, were, uh, these were tribes where their religion and their culture were completely intertwined. And they were fascinating to people like Michael Rockefeller and anthropologists because they were largely free of Western taboo. There was no taboo against homosexual sex. There was no taboo against cannibalism or, you know, like um, polyamory, I, th I guess you would call it. Um, sex and blood and war killing were all regarded as just integral parts of how you interact both within your tribe and with other tribes. And this is often a draw for the uh, European explorer. Um, you know, the reason America is named America to this day and not for Christopher Columbus is that, I'm not sure if we've talked about this in the omnibus before, is that uh, Americo Vespucci left a bunch of journals about, uh, you know, speculating about the, you know, the amazing, the, uh, bizarre sexual promiscuity of the natives and how beautiful their bodies were in every way. And here are some details that my crew discovered. Um, whereas Columbus was a lot more repressed and did not write a bestseller. Sure. And so Americo Vespucci became the way you wanted to learn about America because he loved those native girls. Yeah, that's a much better story. And so, so visiting these cultures where the culture was intact did have a lot of uh, purient appeal. But also, you know, headhunting in particular and cannibalism were the ultimate Western taboo. Um, and a lot of the places we associate with cannibalism, you know, didn't actually have that much. 
right? Africa and the Amazon was, you know, it was pretty scattered. There were not a bunch of chiefs with big wooden iron pots like in New Yorker cartoons. Right. But this but New was, Guinea had plenty. New Guinea did. And it was not, you know, they were not eating their enemies in order to have a big, you know, meal of delicious human flesh. It was very symbolic. And like you suggested earlier, you would take the power of your enemy by like by tasting their flesh, eating their brains, for instance. But um, we also now know it's a great way to spread Creutzfeldt Jakob syndrome. Yes. Do not eat your enemy's brains now. You, I think you will get Kuru. If you are, if you are futurelings, you may have a either developed an immunity B you have developed a cure for mad cow disease or, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, encephal. What's the other? Um, Bovine spongiform. Yeah, spongiform. Encephalopathy or whatever it's called. Spongiformitis. Or C, maybe you are post-brain. Maybe you are into a kind of... Yes. Yeah. Ingest your enemy's brains figuratively by reading their blog. Yes, That's our modern thing. You are ingesting our brains right now by listening to our podcast. You'll get infected by bad ideas, but not by the prions in our heads. Like we actually discovered a new form of disease transmission by studying the neurological illnesses of New Zealand. We discovered the prion. It's not a bacteria. It's not a virus. It's a way that disease can spread just by a bunch of proteins. And one way it spreads is by eating the brains of somebody else who has some neurological syndrome. There are probably a lot of listeners who are fascinated with zombie culture who are thinking, well, don't eat brains unless you're a zombie. Then you'd have to. It's part of your culture. Yeah, that's right. It's it would be, it would be have, against your religion not to. You need to have brain eating pride. In the case of the residents of Papua New Guinea, who were still practicing cannibalism up until the 1970s and headhunting, it was absolutely part of their not just it's it's too small a word to say religion even because it so informs their their entire worldview. Everything is is religion. You know, they're animist right. people that see their spirits in the trees and their spirits in the sky and in the waves. And yeah, there's nothing that's not religion if you're someone like that. So into this world comes 23-year-old Michael Rockefeller, extremely blonde, uh, wearing glasses and what would be the predictable uniform of a Yale graduate at the time, a short sleeve button down shirt and khaki pants. He's got a beard too. Cause he's, you know, he's a cool kid, but it's a, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty well, wispy. Beard. It's well trimmed. And he's here because he's, he's uh, one of the richest kids in the world. And he's at, at first, I think there to collect art, mm-hmm. uh, to bring back. And I think probably win the affection of his father by showing up back in New York with, with a lot of new stuff for this Museum of Primitive Art. And that's a pretty good plan if you're in that situation. Better than doing what the Getty kid did and just going to Italy to do drugs and get his ear cut off or whatever. Yeah, this is a classic thing for Western college graduates to do, which is go on their big tour and go have some exotic experiences. I definitely have a sword fighting scar from, uh, you know, my battles with Austrian monarchy immediately after college. Is that why you grew the beard? Yep, yep, to cover my fencing scar. Because it doesn't convey the same amount of daring do that it did back in the 1980s. Uh, but so he arrives and then he discovers this untouched culture and becomes fascinated by it. So it's not enough that he filled up a shipping container with uh, artifacts, but that he wanted he wanted more. He wanted this experience, the thrill of it. Um, and returned to uh, the tribes of New Guinea. Now, the people of this region are generally referred to as the Asmat people. Yeah, he's like, he's in Southwest New Guinea. Southwest New Guinea. And there are, like I say, a thousand or more languages and different tribal cultures that are all part of a kind of general cultural framework, but they all are, are very different from one another and in competition with one another and, you know, competitions that exist for a thousand years. Some of, some of the residents of New Guinea are, uh, these are some of the earliest peoples, right? There have been uh, humans on New Guinea for 60,000 years. And if you- How come they never domesticated kangaroos then? That's what I want to know. Uh, That's like the first thing I would do. I don't think kangaroos are native to New Guinea. There are some on New Guinea. Are there New Guinean kangaroos? Yeah, they own- Big I, ones, small ones? I think smaller than in Australia. Right. But nobody milks them. Wait, do marsupials even have nipples? I don't even know. They do, but they're inside the pouches. Remember the, the little- 
bunnies, little naked bunnies go inside. That's why nobody milks them, I guess. Yeah, you can't get in there. You'd have to reach in stick there. your head into the pouch. I'm not going to buy a speculum just so I can drink kangaroo milk. You know, if it were me, I would breed them so that they were giant and then saddle them. Oh, yeah. Right? That's and what I'm, you want to do. I'm sure if there are futurelings right now who are tisk tisking because this is very inappropriate talk. Well, maybe they've tried it and know it's impossible. Or they may be sentient kangaroos who are like this right now is the reason I'm stopping listening to Omnibus. I was a fan of this show until now, but this is, this is a bridge too far. We have lost the kangaroo rights people. Uh, so Michael Rockefeller goes back, and then in a um, just an unfortunate incident, uh, he's out in a, in a motorized canoe traveling between sections of the coast, and uh, they run out of gas. He's with a friend by the name of uh, René Wassing, who is a Frenchman, and they run out of gas, and they're afloat, like, without power for 24 hours, just out there bobbing along, hoping someone comes and rescues them. But it's not an area where there are a ton of rescuers, and they seem to be floating away, and at a point where they're about 10 miles offshore. I think it's even more dire than this. I think their catamaran actually capsized. Oh, did it tip right? over? So I think they're clutching the uh, they're clutching the hull and hoping they get found in time. You're saying their feet are in the water. Literally in the water. The possibly shark-infested waters of the Arafura Sea, I guess, off the southwestern coast. Well, it was dire enough that Michael decided that he was going to swim for it. And right, if, if you're afraid a current is taking you out to sea, right, now's the time to act. And in my own case, if I were clinging to a dugout canoe and, and saw that I was 10 miles from shore, I would not dare swim to shore because I, I don't consider myself that strong a swimmer. But Michael was a Yaley and uh, one of these hale and hardy types, although he's, he reads as very thin and wiry in photographs. Uh, that's what Yale was full of, these kind of wiry guys who could still do 30 chin-ups or... Yeah, you know, he was probably... Or, or row for six hours. Although not muscular, he was probably vascular. <laughs> uh, so he, he, you know, he left Rene clinging to the, to the dugout and swam for it, never to be seen again. And apparently actually tied a couple of empty gas cans to his belt as a means of keeping himself afloat, but um, was lost. And Rene was shortly rescued, as is, as is often the case in stories like this. So, if, so Michael Rockefeller could have stayed with the boat. He could have boat. just stayed with the boat and would have been fine. Instead, his famous last words, I think I can make it. I think I can make it. That's the motto of every um, overly confident young man out of his depth. I mean, right? think about how many people have those as their last words. <laughs> That's going to be my tombstone. Even if I die at 108 in a hospital bed, I think I can make it. Uh, I, th well, think about the in kind of imagined invulnerability you would have, you know, as a billionaire's grandson, nothing's ever gone wrong for you. You feel like even here off the coast of New Guinea, right? The world is kind of my oyster and what could really go wrong? I think I can make it. Watch this. <laughs> Watch this, the Michael Rockefeller story. <laughs> That's another famous last words. Watch this. Uh, so there is, they immediately mount a huge rescue campaign. The, uh, some of the Rockefellers actually fly to New Guinea. They hire helicopters and planes uh, that canvas the area. The Dutch are involved, and they find no trace of him. And so it is sort of decided upon and agreed upon that he was that he drowned. He probably drowned. Drowned or was eaten by sharks. Shark got him before he got back. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. 
And so that's where it was left. But there was another suspicion on the part of some of the people involved in the region who felt like, first of all, sharks don't really attack people in this region. There are no documented shark attacks in the Azmat corridor. And things do float up on shore. And if he drowned, his body would have eventually washed up on shore. Floating feet. Floating feet is right. And his body would have been retrieved by the Azmat, who see this type of thing all the time, and would have been processed by them. Uh, And by processed, I mean dismembered. His body parts would have been used. They Uh, would use the bones as daggers and yeah they're they're a stone age people pre-iron and so their weaponry was made out of bones of like the best material they have probably sure sure your thigh bone is a pretty nice beginning to a spear oh i thank you what a nice thing to say i don't know about your thigh oh it might seem a little brittle actually you mean one's thigh one's thigh some one who was strong i thought you were complimenting the potential of my femur hmm I suppose the you know what if I had no other weapon, I'm not saying if I you, would use your femurs. I'm not Ken. saying who would you fi- pick out of a crowd to make a spear from the leg bone of. Like, You're not I, saying that. I don't need to be your top choice. This was the thing that we used to entertain ourselves on tour with. Who in the van would be the first one to go? <laughs> who would be the one we ate first? It was a yeah, it was a lot of fun. Were you often snowbound in the? Or you, you know, you're just out there, you're with each other for days and days on end. You're the only people you really believe truly exist because everyone else just looks like a face in the crowd. So you're getting passive aggression. Yeah. Which one of us would die first? So some Catholic missionaries actually talked to some locals in not the immediate aftermath, but within a year or two. Yeah. And heard a harrowing tale which was... That is my favorite kind of tale, so I, yes. hope, I hope you're about to harrow us with it. That Michael Rockefeller did, in fact, swim that 10-mile gulf. Nice job, Yale Swim Club or whatever. Made it to the shore and was greeted by some villagers from either the village of o- Omadisep or Otsjanep. So there was the Omadisep people from the village of Otsjanep or the other way around. There's two villages with those names, yeah, I think, right? right competing villages um pulled him out of the water and stabbed him and then proceeded to whack him on the head with an axe killing him and then dismembered his body ate his brains tasted of his flesh and then proceeded to process uh, his bones into various implements and mounted his head as a talisman And there was a reason for this. It wasn't just that they were unfriendly. In fact, they were familiar with him. But that there had been, in the process of the Dutch trying to assert, kind of as a a last-ditch attempt to assert their authority over this island, they were under tremendous pressure from the United Nations and the people of New Guinea to, to relinquish their hold on this territory. As you know, Indonesia swept in in the in the vacuum left by the Dutch and now Indonesia has its own problems in New Guinea. Yeah, they still own half the island as their province of Irian Jaya. They do and they are kind of pulling a like a settlement routine, settling Indonesians there and pushing out native New Guineans. Uh but as a part of the, so there was a kind of a ongoing warfare between tribes. And the Dutch the sent, Dutch want them to settle down. The Dutch want them to settle, settle down, down in there, you guys. And they sent a, a man named uh, Max Lepre, who was sort of the Dutch administrator. And in the course of putting down a local rebellion, he killed five local tribespeople, shot them, shot sort of fired into the crowd. And this probably deeply colors the way they think of their new white visitors. Well, what it did was it created a debt, a blood debt, because within their uh, tribal cosmology, all uh, deaths like this were repaid in kind. If an enemy killed, like killed, captured, beheaded, and ate a member of your tribe, uh, there was actually a sort of a totem pole that you built in order to honor their memory. And these 
poles, which are called like beast poles. It's a word with a J at the end, and I have no idea even how to say that. I think you would just say beasts. Do you think that it's a silent uh, J? Yeah. Yeah, it's the classic Dutch silent J. We're going to get letters again. Beast. Can we, Beast. Stay, can we stay away from the Dutch pronunciation? Beast. We did it. We've done all right a couple of times. I'm glad Max Lepre just sounds like a French guy. I don't feel like I screwed that up. But uh, these poles were some of the items that uh, that Michael Rockefeller was collecting. Ironically. For his father's museum. And these are poles that are that commemorate the loss in battle of a soldier. And, um, and often you commemorate their death by going and capturing and killing one of the enemy. And, you know, there were some of the beast poles actually had places on them that you would mount a skull of someone that you killed in the honor of this warrior. I guess it's not unlike like the counting coup of the, of the Plains Indian where the prestige of your tribe is really bound up with the next victory. Right. Yeah. The the prize. Somewhat similar. Although, um, although it's so much more integrated, I think into every aspect, you know, there were, there were blood rituals that where you would soak yourself and everybody else in the blood of your victor. And then, uh, have sex with one another sort of drenched in blood, which seems even, even the Plains Indians, I think would have. Yeah. Uh, that's more like an Italian horror movie of the seventies. Yeah, they would have straightened their ties. The, the Ojibwe's would be like, mm, no, sorry, pass. sir. You guys seem like that's a little <laughs> seems, odd. Um, so there was a story related to these, uh, these priests that this had all happened to Michael Rockefeller in retribution for the five deaths at the hands of Max LaPrey and his, his Dutch uh, colonial police officers, that was this sort of outstanding blood that needed to be repaid. And of course, there was, uh, the white anthropologists were very intimidating, right? They came from afar uh, with all this technology. There already was, as was the case often in the Pacific, that there was, um, there was a myth of the white God that came across the ocean on the, on a winged bird and borderline cargo cult feeling, you know, you see a plane cross overhead and you're like, those are the spirit canoes of the sky. Right. There they are. And I think after the death of Michael Rockefeller, it, um, the subsequent searches with all these helicopters, which no one had ever seen before, sort of hovering over the beach and airplanes crisscrossing the sky. The story that he was killed by these tribes, they interpreted this aftermath as punishment. You know, they were suddenly besieged and realized, or I guess it was threaded into the story that this was not something to do. Do not kill uh, the white swimmer because, boy. It's nice that he became a cautionary tale. You really have to suffer an awful lot of noise. Future billionaire kids' lives might have been saved, you know. Well, so this story somewhat leaked out. The Catholics did not, the missionaries did not popularize the story. They kind of kept it within their own secret culture. Well, yeah, they're really incentivized not to. It could really endanger the local mission. Endanger the local mission. And also the Dutch did not want their last claim to this island to undergo this or to to suffer this publicity blow. The semblance of order is very important to them. Right. So they cover it up as well. It makes it seem like they don't know what they're doing. Uh, which clearly they didn't. But so it's covered up and the Rockefeller family has never accepted any story other than that their uh, son was drowned and perhaps eaten by sharks. Do they prefer that? I wonder what's emotionally better for a family. Well, I mean, if you think about his father, his father ran for president three years later. I mean, they were very prominent in American culture and, and still thought of as among the richest people in the world. The idea that their son, for all his wealth and privilege and power, could not keep from being eaten and have his skull used as a decoration in someone's house. You'd rather have the enemy be non-human. Yeah. Of course we fell to a shark, as anyone would. He died in an adventure, not as... um, Misadventure. A misadventure, right. And also it, it enables them to still maintain the belief that we could be the greatest, most invulnerable humans. Sure, a shark could eat us, but no, no other human could. We're the Rockefellers. Right. The second you get eaten by the village of uh, Amenhotep, or I can't remember how we're saying it, uh, you know, then you're saying, well, there's somebody ahead of the Rockefellers, and it's this one rando village in southwest New Guinea. Well, so about eight years later, uh, 
another sort of documentary filmmaker slash anthropologist by the name of Milt Machlin, who was the publisher of a magazine called Argosy, went with a film crew to try and track down this story and came upon a situation where a tribal storyteller was addressing a, a large group of people and telling them the story of this white man that they found and killed. And all the stories that have come out of New Guinea are fairly consistent. He washed up on the beach. They thought he was a crocodile at first because he was so unusual looking. They realized it was a man. They realized it was a white guy. They, they recognized that they had this debt to pay. They stabbed him, chopped his head. The rest followed, right? That's not, there's not a ton of dispute about what happened. Uh, he didn't capture the story on film, but he did start the camera uh, long enough to capture this storyteller saying, don't tell anyone this story. This is just for us. If you talk about this, we're all going to, this is the story that will destroy us. I wonder what that did to the, to the village. You know, it's like the, it's like the town with a secret in a Western, you know, bad day at Black Rock or something. Right. And everybody kind of feels like they're walking on eggshells for the rest of their lives because of what they did to the visitor X. Yeah. Well, and as you get, I mean, this culture here, the culture, culture of the Azmats, although it is in contact with the West. Most of they, and they don't cannibalize anymore or headhunt as far as we know, but most of their other tribal traditions are still intact. So this is the, this is a corner of the world that isn't a member of, I mean, they, they don't have a UN representative, uh, but Milt made a documentary about the search for Michael Rockefeller and concluded from all these stories that he in fact had been killed and eaten. Fairly controversial, but you know, the other things that Milt is famous for is he's the man who coined the term Bermuda Triangle. Oh, really? And also coined the term abominable snowman. Was Argus, I thought Argus, he was going to be some off-brand National Geographic. Is it some kind of, uh, some kind of pulp mysteries of the it's unexplained a, uh, magazine? a little cryptozoological and, um, this was the era, as we've described before, of a fascination with this kind of mystery. Disappearances. And, yeah. And he's actually at the ground floor of this one, but he's the boy who cried wolf. And, and nobody believes that he's actually got the scoop on Michael Rockefeller because he wrote too many articles about the Yeti. Well, it's a, you know, it's like Amelia Earhart. It's very difficult to prove uh, because there's no wreckage. The member of the Azmats who had... So the thing about the thing is culturally within their own culture, no one ever stepped forward and said, I killed him or I was part of the, the, the war party. It was always referred to, and I think Noam Chomsky would be someone to consult at this point, but they always used very uh, passive language forms. They would describe it as, I heard a story about, mm. or we heard from someone that this happened, even within the village where it clearly kind of went down right in this region. We heard. There's some like collective idea that we, the village did this. Yeah. Or, or, or not that we did it, but that we heard it was done mm. by someone nearby <laughs> over there. Those, you know, the people on the other side of the fire. Um, but within those stories, one person, you know, revealed that they knew where the skull was, that it hung in a certain house and that it was small, like the skull of a child because, Apparently, you know, Michael Rockefeller was fairly slight. So although it remains a mystery, there's fairly compelling evidence that one of the scions of one of America's richest families met this inglorious end on a beach. I guess all those people wearing T-shirts that say, eat the rich, should be consoled by the fact that it, it happened exactly once. And that concludes Michael Rockefeller. Entry 1078.MI0303, certificate number 7628, in the omnibus. Listeners, you no doubt do not have social media in your time. One can never know. But we want you to know that thousands of years ago, we did. If you perhaps have some ability to enter a simulated version of the 21st century with your super advanced computing power... <laughs> The first thing you should do once you put the VR helmet over your head is head for a public library and look for at John Roderick or at Ken Jennings on Twitter and on Instagram in John's case or at Omnibus Project on any social media platform in any era. Uh, you could also email us at 
omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com or look for like-minded listeners of the project with the Facebook group called Futurelings. Uh, listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, when eating the brains of your enemy is still a social taboo, I guess it's sort of a brief interregnum where it's a social taboo. And it I'm, glad we, I'm glad we live in that interregnum. Yeah. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't then, and perhaps it won't be in your now, but for our time, it's really considered gauche. Yeah, like if, jo- if I was in the John Rawls Veil of Ignorance experiment and I was asked, do you want to live on a time on Earth where cannibalism is gauche or not, I would absolutely choose gauche. Choose gauche. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, unless I was hu- really hungry when they offered me the choice. I mean, from where I stand, like learning that cannibalism was not about actually eating your enemy until you were full, but it was more like take a bite of your enemy just as a sign of like kind of like a serial killery way, like you're taking their energy into you because you're bad. It's your, less like a your mind. It's less like a bucket of chicken and more like taking an Alka Seltzer. Yeah, just sort of like, now I own you. I have your blood on me and I'm gonna have sex with everybody in my village. And that I mean that doesn't I'm, I'm I, I I can't tell where you're going. Are you gonna, no, are I'm you not embarrassed you're, you're, to say that seems a little bit, you know You're more into it now. Well I'm sort of, you know, that's that sounds a little bit more interesting than just like going to a club and standing against the wall and glaring at everybody. Sure, discussions of cannibalism often revolve around how we think people taste. And, and often we're like, I wouldn't do that. What no, if it, that what sounds if it doesn't, gross. What if it doesn't taste good? And you're like, I don't care if it doesn't taste good. It's all about the scene, man. Yeah, it's about the scene. It's about, it's about the doing, like, not the... What were you wearing when you, like, ate that guy? Yeah, I'll eat gourds all day and night, but every once in a while I want to kill my enemy and, and uh, take a bite of his brain. I don't think gourds are actually edible. Like what about you, the inside of gourds? I don't know. What even is on the inside? If there's a if there's a dude and he's wearing a gourd, you might have to eat the dude because I think the gourd is not. It's like wood. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Maybe he's keeping something in the gourd and I'd eat that. Something delicious. Anyway, uh, for those of you listening along, if this is our final word, boy, what a weird way to go out. Uh, we hope <laughs> it's like not. Just like every podcast of our era, <laughs> we ended with the cannibalism episode. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.